from PRX. Stew. Stew. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Oh, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, the curvature of space is what we experience as gravity. Time and space are no longer certain. Relativity is like one mathematical sentence. Really? Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. It's the winter of 1915, and this 36-year-old physics professor in Berlin is having just about the worst year of his life. At the end of 1915, everything is coming apart for him. He's racing to figure out the theory of general relativity, so he's staying up all night to try to get the equations right. Biographer Walter Isaacson. In the meantime, he's estranged from his first wife, trying to get a divorce. He is dating his first cousin. His, uh, one of his children is having deep mental problems, and his wife is uh, trying to prevent him from seeing the kids. And he doesn't compartmentalize that well. Instead, he writes a ton of letters. Never in my life have I tormented myself like this. I am often so engrossed in my work that I forget to eat lunch. And there's a world war. He's in the capital city of the losing side. World War I is ending in defeat. They're starting to blame the Jews for it. And he's very much a loner in the Prussian Academy, living alone in a big apartment in Berlin, padding around, having ulcers because he's trying to race to get to the mathematics of general relativity. It's a problem he's been working on for 10 years now. His last big breakthrough was back in 1905 when he was practically a kid. And now he's just stuck. I do not believe that I am able to find the mistake myself. For in this matter, my mind is too set in a deep rut. It was a really grueling time for him. When he was growing up in Germany in the 1880s and 90s, nobody pegged Albert Einstein as some genius. Well, you know, Albert Einstein was slow in, in learning to speak as a child, so slow that his parents thought he was a bit backwards and they consulted a doctor. Huh. But later he on... He would have been a special ed kid? Yes, he would have been special ed. And thank goodness we did not have <laughs> yeah. special ed back then because he learned to think visually and he learned to question things that you and I kind of take for granted. In fact, he dropped out of high school and then had to apply twice to a university in Switzerland that accepted students who didn't have high school diplomas. He was actually very good in math. There's a wonderful sort of, you know, rumor that Einstein failed math. Right. Now, but he did have a problem that lots of very smart students have. He didn't try that hard. Instead of attending class or studying in university, he'd rather just play the violin in cafes. He expected afterwards to breeze into graduate school, but he couldn't get in anywhere and couldn't find a job teaching either. But in the end, he ended up at the patent office. The Swiss patent office in Bern. He had a stool in the patent office. He was only a third-class examiner because he still couldn't get this doctoral dissertation accepted. And so he couldn't be promoted to second class or first class. You needed, to, get a, you needed to have the doctorate to be a 
chief of class one patent clerk? Correct. To become a physicist, he knew he had to do research and publish it. He didn't have a lab, but he did have all these patent applications coming across his desk. And a lot of those applications, this was Switzerland, had to do with getting the trains to run on time, which got Einstein thinking. We had railroads, we had telegraphs, we had standard time zones, and we were traveling. So suddenly it all matters, and Einstein is looking at patent applications for synchronizing clocks. You know, the Swiss had gone on standard time zones, and if you've ever interviewed a Swiss person, they tend to be really Swiss. They yeah. want it to strike the hour in Bern at the exact yeah. instant it striked it in Zurich, and the only way to do that is to send a signal between the clocks. So Einstein was looking at these patent applications and wondering. Is it true what Isaac Newton had said, that time is the same for everybody everywhere? And he comes up with a thought experiment, which is if you're traveling really fast towards one of the clocks, what will look synchronized is different than if you're traveling really fast in the other direction. Because of the nanosecond, it takes a signal to catch up with you while you're traveling. And the person speeding away sees the clock strike the hour a tiny bit later than the person standing right next to the clock. And he said, oh, I get it. The speed of light is always constant, but time is relative depending on your motion. If you think about it, we're seeing it all the time. Physicist Lawrence Krauss. If you look at a picture of uh, your elementary school class... Okay, well, you say that's an instant in time when I when my, that picture is taken, but it's not really an instant in time because the light from the students in the back of the classroom took longer to get to the camera than the light from the students in the front of the classroom. Uh-huh. So you're really seeing an image that's smeared out in time as well as space. And that idea became known as special relativity. It rocked the foundations of physics at the time. Since Newton, back in the 1600s, had said so, everybody took it for granted that time and space were absolute, that they were the same for everyone, everywhere in the universe. But Einstein said, no, uh uh-uh, just the opposite, in fact. Time and space are relative, depending on where you are and where you're headed. Einstein was the right person to make that mental leap. He had not been somebody who accepted traditional teachings. He was a bit of a rebel. Every other physicist trying to figure out this problem had read Newton. And Newton begins at Procipia by saying time marches along, second by second, irrespective of how we observe it. And here's a guy trying to figure out patent applications for devices that will synchronize clocks. And he's saying, how do we know that? Just because Newton tells us? But special relativity was just one of the breakthrough papers Einstein wrote in 1905 when he was 26 years old. He has three major insights and two minor ones and then an addendum. This was Einstein's Annus Mirabilis, his miracle year. His mind was exploding with ideas and theories and possibilities, and it took the world a while to catch up with him. Eventually, he quit his patent office job and started climbing the academic ladder. But something kept nagging at him. Another thought experiment that special relativity 
couldn't help him solve. The famous example he used was a thought experiment in an elevator in empty space. If you're in an elevator in empty space with no gravity and it accelerates upward, you get pushed down towards the floor. Anyone who's been in an elevator feels that push. If you had a ball and let it go, seen from outside, the ball would be standing still, but in the frame of the elevator, the ball would be accelerating towards the floor. And he realized that there's really no experiment you could do that would distinguish for that person in the elevator whether he or she was in a gravitational field or in an elevator that was accelerating. So Einstein was pushing against another of Isaac Newton's basic principles, the force of gravity. But he just couldn't figure out the math and banged his head against the problem for a decade. The hardest decade of his life. He'd had this miracle year, and now, a decade later, he can't make any progress. He's stalled. And all this family trouble, in love with his cousin, separated from his wife, kids turning against him. He tries moving back in with his wife, but they can't even talk to each other. You renounce all personal relations with me insofar as they are not completely necessary for social reasons. Specifically, you will forego, one, my sitting at home with you. Two, my going out or traveling. At the same time, there's another German mathematician in Göttingen working on this gravity problem. And he's much closer to making the equations work. And Einstein knows it. If the other guy publishes first, it'll be his theory of relativity. Then Einstein goes back to a series of equations that he'd given up on years before and starts to get traction with the math. And there it is. He's broken his block. What he's discovered will change the course of physics. General relativity tells us that space can curve in the presence of matter. The curvature of space is what we experience as gravity. He'd worked out a solution for the problem that had baffled scientists since Newton watched that apple fall from the tree. Where does gravitational force come from? Einstein figured out gravity isn't a force. It's just the side effect of curved space. You can try to picture it if you take a ball and roll it, a big bowling ball on a trampoline, and it curves the fabric of the trampoline, and you roll some billiard balls after it, they start rolling and they curve to the bowling ball. Why? Not because the bowling ball has some mysterious attraction, which is people thought gravity was before Einstein, but because the bowling ball has curved the fabric of the trampoline. The great leap Einstein makes is he takes it from the two-dimensional fabric of the trampoline and puts it into the four dimensions of space and time. Yeah. General relativity is a theory that tells us that space and time are dynamical. They are affected by the presence of matter and energy. And it's that nonlinear relationship that both makes general relativity exciting and very complicated. Einstein wrote it up and published his theory of general relativity in 1916. This is the greatest satisfaction of my life. The theory is of incomparable beauty. But to test the theory, prove it was true, they needed a total solar eclipse. Luckily, they got one in 1919. They aimed a telescope right next to the sun, which was blocked out by the moon for seven minutes, and there they could see it. Stars. Stars that shouldn't have been there because they should have been hidden behind the sun. 
But as Einstein had predicted, the giant mass of our sun made space curve around it so that the light from those faraway stars was bending around the sun. And a graduate student of his saying, you know, isn't this amazing? What would you have felt if it had turned out otherwise? And Einstein says, Then I would have been sorry for the dear Lord. The theory is correct. Suddenly, his name was on the front page of newspapers with a new theory of gravity. And the New York Times headline is, Lights All Askew in the Heavens. Yeah. Man of Science More or Less Agog is a subhead. Uh, stars not where they were supposed to or appear to be or something like yeah. that. Einstein theory proven correct. Remember, this is right after World War I. 18 million people had been killed. Science had invented the machine guns and mustard gas that made the war so deadly. But here was an international group of scientists, German and British, working together peacefully to change the way we thought about the nature of existence, discover the truth. It was important because we had just gone through the war, and you had a theory of a German scientist proven correct by a British astronomer with an international crew that went to islands in the Atlantic to look at an eclipse, and the world was hungering for something like that, just like it was hungering for a Charlie Chaplin. In fact, Chaplin invited Einstein to one of his movie premieres. On his first visit to America, cities threw Einstein parades. This former patent clerk who couldn't get a job as a teacher was giving public lectures to huge packed houses. He was a world celebrity, and after that it was very difficult for him to lead the same life. It's so dreadful that I can barely breathe anymore, not to mention getting around to any sensible work. The theory of relativity became famous too, and it unsettled people. You have all these people who are saying time and space and the location of particles and everything else are no longer certain. And it felt like it had unmoored us from that certainty of a Newtonian universe. At the same time, since the beginning of the century and even more since the war, artists were questioning all the standard understandings. Composers threw out classical melodies and went atonal. Novelists turn inward. Painters stopped painting realistically. Objectivity was out. Subjectivity ruled. In this new modern world, everything was relative. I think Stravinsky, Picasso, uh, certainly Proust, they knew of Einstein. They right. did try to wrestle with his theories. And so that notion that uh, we don't have to be bound by the classical rules anymore... I think, uh, sort of fed on itself. But Albert Einstein didn't listen to Stravinsky. He believed the universe was like Mozart's music, orderly, elegant, beautiful, rational. Unfortunately, people started conflating and confusing Einstein's theory of relativity with moral relativism, the idea that there aren't any universal moral principles and that what's ethical or empirically true in life all depends on context, that it's all relative. He abhorred the notion that the theory of relativity was supposed to lead to relativism. Yeah. He believed it led to some real certainties about the universe. And moral certainties, good versus definite evil, were about to get tested. 
It was especially a problem because the anti-Semites arising in the 1920s in Germany started using that as a case against Einstein. Really? Was that he was a relativist. Another scientist, a, a rival of Einstein's, wrote in a Nazi newspaper, the most important example of the dangerous influence of Jewish circles on the study of nature has been provided by Herr Einstein. Einstein left Nazi Germany early and settled in America, in Princeton, New Jersey. But even at that remove, he was thinking of ways to defeat the regime running his country. And he understood that relativity, his theory, could lead scientists and engineers to a weapon vastly more powerful than any ever before. He writes a letter to Franklin Roosevelt. Sir... It may become possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction in a large mass of uranium by which vast amounts of power would be generated. This new phenomena would also lead to the construction of bombs. Roosevelt read the letter and started the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb. Einstein wasn't involved. He's up in the Adirondacks when he gets news of the uh, dropping of the atom bomb. And he just goes, oh, my God. And he really realizes that this will change everything. And so he really urged a new way of looking at atomic weapons, which, by the way, came to pass. I mean, we never used the bomb again. In a few decades, relativity had gone from a theory so outlandish that nobody really believed it to a terrifying, world-changing reality. And 100 years after Einstein's discovery, relativity is still shaping the way we live. In a quarter mile, use the left two lanes to turn left onto Main 77 North. But GPS wouldn't work if it weren't for general relativity. Why is that? Because the clocks on those satellites that are determining your position are ticking at a different rate. And you can show if we didn't take into account general relativity in about 10 seconds, your your GPS would be out of kilter. And in a day, it'd be two kilometers off you've got a relativity box in your pocket. Einstein's amazing discovery helps you get where you're going, and it's still showing the way for physicists 100 years later. Coming up, Directions for how to get back to 1985. From Hair Dr. Einstein to Doc Brown, relativity goes to the movies. That's next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. What the hell is a gigawatt? Studio 360. Jesus Christ, Doc, you disintegrated Einstein. That's Michael J. Fox speaking to Christopher Lloyd in Back to the Future. Calm down, Marty. I didn't disintegrate anything. You see, Einstein has just become the world's first time traveler. Not Albert Einstein. Einstein's the name of the dog. Anyway, this hour, we're talking about the real Einstein. Exactly 100 years after he gave the world the theory of relativity. A reference to Einstein in a movie about time travel, like Back to the Future, is apt because it's Einstein's discovery about the space-time continuum that 
allows for the possibility, the theoretical possibility of time travel. James Glick has thought a lot about fantastical movies and stories about traveling to the past or the future because he is the author of a new book called Time Travel, A History. And he explains how one author was dreaming about time travel years before Einstein was even close to his eureka moment. It's almost unbelievable. I assume there are people shaking their heads if I tell them that there was no such thing as time travel before the time machine in 1895. But H.G. Wells was the first, and he wasn't trying to say anything about science. He just wanted to speculate about the future of humanity. But in order to tell his story, he invented this gimmick. Clearly, the time traveler proceeded, any real body must have extension in four directions. There are really four dimensions, three which we call the three planes of space, and a fourth, time. That was ten years before Einstein's first publication of the special theory of relativity. But H.G. Wells was just, he was kidding. It was a plausible idea. He thought he could get away with it. It was probably something he'd heard someplace. Science fiction writers and philosophers and scientists and literary fiction writers all working in parallel and thinking about time, and the influences go in every direction. The idea of time as a fourth dimension, it was around. It was an idea whose time had come. What shall I set the way back for today? For the year 1874. Yes, sir, Mr. Peabody. To put ourselves into the heads of people living 150 years ago is a challenge. Things were happening, though, to change everybody's conception of time. There are railroads and telegraph wires carrying messages at light speed, and people, for the first time, were starting to think, wow, my grandparents wouldn't recognize this life, and therefore, what does the future hold? Wells didn't need to wait for Einstein to make it official. It was sort of there. And Einstein has a kind of time travel, if you want to call it time travel, that's been proven to be real. Physicists will tell you, and it's been proven, that if you travel close to the speed of light or you travel through a, a dense gravitational field, that slows your clock down. So you age more slowly than your identical twin back on Earth. There were a lot of thought experiments that involved identical twins. But then the science fiction writers got hold of the idea, too, because... Why not? Forward pressure sends the machine into the future. Backward pressure into the past. You input your destination time on this keypad. This readout tells you where you're going. This one tells you where you are. This one tells you where you were. We just set it, turn it on, open the door, and there we are. Or were, really. Okay, the tub is obviously some kind of energy vortex, but instead of being in space, it's, you know, it's in a hot tub. Well, let's, you know, let's be serious here. Time travel isn't actually possible scientifically, at least time travel into the past. Now, I'm sorry if that's going to disappoint people. And there is, you know, the one famous exception where you can slow down your clock by traveling super fast near a black hole. I'm sure everybody remembers Interstellar from just a couple of years ago. And a black hole that big has a huge gravitational pull. The gravity on that planet will slow our clock compared to Earth's drastically. Uh, how bad? Well, every hour we spend on that planet will be seven years back on Earth. Yes. That's relativity, folks. 
And it also added the idea of wormholes, which is considerably more speculative. I don't think Einstein dreamed of wormholes, but, but today's Einstein followers love wormholes. And I guess the idea is you fly in one end and you fly out the other end. Weird things can happen to your place in the space-time continuum. So they say you want to go from here to there, but it's too far, right? Mm-hmm. So a wormhole bends space like this, so you can take a shortcut through a higher dimension. But except for that, we're stuck with the history we have. You know, since time travel isn't actually possible, I find myself always thinking about what's the story that is really being told here, you know? Because I think, for example, about Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. The cranky weatherman finds himself trapped in a, in a cycle. He wakes up at 6 a.m. every single day and has to relive the same day over and over again. Morning! Uh, see the groundhog? Didn't we do this yesterday? I don't know what you mean. No. Ah! Don't mess with me, pork chop. What day is this? It's February 2nd. Groundhog Day. So what's that about? Well, gradually, this kind of unpleasant and unhappy guy finds himself doing better and better. That expresses something that I think we all feel. You know, couldn't I do it over? That's one of the great motivators of time travel, regret. Because time is such a big part of our lives. We wonder, what if history had unfolded in a completely different way? You know, what if you changed history? Or what if this event in the future didn't happen? But if it if it didn't happen, how can it have happened? That's the awkward, abstract way of putting it. The common way of putting it is, what if you go back in time and you shoot your grandfather? And then you're never born, and so that now you don't go back in time, and so you can't shoot your grandfather, and so now you've got a, a Mobius strip. You can't kill us. We're your parents. Without us, you're never born. Says who? Every paradox, in a way, is like the grandfather paradox. You might not recognize it because it keeps popping up in different forms. For a while, I was hoping I could find, you know, a letter from Einstein. My dream was that he'd read The Time Machine and, and said, aha, but of course, that's, it's nothing like that. There's no evidence that I could find that Einstein was a sci-fi buff. That's the author James Glick. His book, Time Travel, A History, is available now. Also, in the past and the future. I mean, what could be more boring than a character in a novel nowadays entering a room and there's a, a blinking high-tech apparatus? That's the novelist John Ray. His time travel book is called The Lost Time Accident. It came out earlier this year. He says we've come a long way since H.G. Wells's time machine and all its whirligigs. They had fun with that in Back to the Future and that they just made it a sports car. But I just thought it would be more fun to have it just be essentially a cardboard box that you get into and, and just dream in. While he was researching the lost time accidents, Ray learned a lot about Albert Einstein because his novel is about this Eastern European family in the early 1900s who believe that they have discovered the secret to time travel. And they see Einstein as their arch enemy. In the novel, they never mention him by name. Instead, they call him the patent clerk. Yeah, he's the name that must not be spoken. Exactly. 
not quite Voldemort, but uh, why did you – was that a comic uh, decision to keep him kind of just over there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah? Absolutely. I mean I was just really fascinated by the idea of a character or, or, or a whole group of characters who had the same obsessive quality of – fascination with certain scientific problems that great scientists like Einstein have, but who just happen to be completely wrong. Yeah. Uh, I saw a lot of comic potential in that. Yes. Um, the book is this multi-generational story about this physicist who is also a pickle maker uh, <laughs> and, and his, his descendants uh, as they make their way through the 20th century, uh, and it involves time travel as well. Um, yeah, they sort of make their way back and forth and left and right. Right. Which is... Am I right thinking, oh, well, that's what every writer of historical fiction feels like. I mean, it's the closest way we can come to time travel. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think that um, sort of the basic premise of the novel in terms of time travel is that this kind of imaginary time travel that we all engage in, not just writers or or, or creative people, but anyone who ever remembers something vividly or speculates about what might happen next week, it can, in fact, be right. absolutely concrete and, and just as real as any other experience. Right. Um, in terms of how the public has understood him for the last 100 years, how we understand him today, it's not so much the, the scientists scribbling equations and doing math or the political idealist. It's the, it's the cute old guy with the, the wacky hair uh, on right. you know, posters on dorm rooms. Sticking uh, his tongue out. Sticking his tongue out. Um, that cute, wise grandpa version uh, uh, shows up in the movie IQ. I don't know if you've seen it, which came out in 1994. Yes, I have seen that garbage barge of a romantic comedy. Um, well, we're going to listen to a little bit of it. Walter Matthau plays Einstein, and he's trying to fix up uh, Meg Ryan and Tim Robbins. What she needs is to go out with someone like you. The problem is, she would never go out with someone like you. That's easy. Just lend me your brain for a couple of days. That is, unfortunately, Walter Matthau as Albert Einstein in the movie IQ. He was this charming guy. That was a real aspect. It absolutely was part of who he was. Uh, He really was an extremely modest man. He really, truly had no interest in the trappings of fame or fortune. He truly was an outsider even in Princeton. You know, he spent most of his time alone. And he actually, he truly had a remarkable sense of humor about himself as well as as, uh, the society that he was in. I think another reason that Einstein has become such a popular and enduring icon is that when he began to publish his theories, um, and even to this day, a lot of people are, are a little bit frightened by science. And the implications of science seem to be very cold and forbidding, and they seem to be negating uh, a lot of uh, the things that people hold dear, their spirituality and their religion. Right. And here comes Einstein, who's so warm and generous and modest and almost saint-like in a yes. certain way. And, and before the phrase spiritual but not religious existed, he was that. Exactly, exactly. And so... He also, in his person and in his persona, served as a, as, as a figure who might unify science and spirituality. Unfortunately, he died before Back to the Future, so he didn't get to see Doc Brown. The Doc <laughs> Brown uh, version of Albert Einstein, which right. clearly is a, is a character somehow descended from that trope. Let's Absolutely. Listen, let's listen to a little bit of that movie. This but I need a nuclear reaction to, to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity. 1.21 gigawatts! <laughs> 1.21 gigawatts! 
<laughs> that is Christopher Lloyd uh, as the Goy Einstein, I guess, and Michael J. <laughs> Fox in Back to the Future. Um, so before Albert Einstein, was that a caricature of the scientist afoot or, or did he sort of – did it begin with him? Well, really, the only direct connection between the mad scientist in Back to the Future and Albert Einstein is the crazy shock of Snow White hair. Right. We get it immediately. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's true. That's true. You know, it's exactly a, right. we immediately think Einstein. He, I think unintentionally, but very effectively created a kind of persona that could be reduced to the simplest caricature of just a, a few drawn lines. Yeah. Which is a kind of modern phenomenon. I mean, I, I yes. suppose that happened in the 18th century, no, but it no. seems like a 20th century thing. Absolutely. And what I was about to say is that Einstein's scientific career evolved almost in parallel with uh, various forms of modern media, with, uh, you know, the newsreel and, the, right. and, and radio and then later film. And he was very well suited to these forms of media yeah. because you couldn't possibly reduce his theories to a soundbite, but you could certainly reduce his persona to a, a tidy little caricature. And that, I think, caused him to be very effectively transmitted worldwide yes. as this kind of concept. Right. But but even as he had become this global superstar synonym for genius uh, in the 20th century, he'd also become slightly marginal in physics. Is that because he didn't accept quantum theory? The very sort of willingness on Einstein's part to tilt at windmills and risk the disapproval and, and sort of incredulity of his colleagues in the last third of his life became this truly quixotic quest yeah. to disprove various innovations and discoveries and theories that had directly sprung from yeah. relativity. Einstein was completely alone in his resistance to the implications of his own earlier work. So he was once again an outsider as he had been as a young man. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. In fact, it's very symmetrical if you think of it in a certain way. He began as a complete outsider who was not taken seriously. Suddenly he became the absolute, utter, total insider in, in the sense that his ideas and work could not have been more central to every aspect of physics. And they changed every aspect of physics. And then after that relatively brief period of a decade or two, he moved farther and farther out of relevance, essentially. Yeah. And he ended up in a very similar position to that yeah. in which he began, that yeah. of, of total outsider. Yeah. Well, John Ray, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kurt. It was wonderful to be here. John Ray's novel is called The Lost Time Accidents. And still ahead this hour, the power of big science to bring people together. When they announced the discovery, the whole world stopped. And we're talking for a second about being under the same sky. Gravitational waves. One of Einstein's most far-fetched predictions comes true exactly 100 years later. That's just ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. What are you doing? What does it look like I'm doing, Einstein? <laughs> it looks like you're unloading dirty dishes, Einstein. Well, why didn't you leave a note saying that, Einstein? Stop calling me Einstein! Stop calling me Einstein! Albert Einstein published his theory of general relativity in 1916. 
And exactly 100 years later, a group of American scientists using giant contraptions that cost a billion dollars confirmed the existence of one of that theory's most outlandish predictions, gravitational waves. Jenna Levin is an astrophysicist at Columbia University who has written a book about that breakthrough. It's called Black Hole Blues, and she is with me here now. Jenna, welcome back. Always good to be here. So, first things first, uh, what is a black hole? (laughs) You think that's an easy question. (laughs) Um, One of the ways we know nature has figured out how to make a black hole takes a very big star at the death state, and uh, it can't resist a complete catastrophic gravitational collapse. So that star gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and as it gets incredibly dense. It creates what's called an event horizon, which is a region beyond which not even light can escape. The gravitational field is so strong, you'd have to travel faster than the speed of light to escape this collapsing star. But then the star keeps falling. And so the event horizon is actually a region of empty space. The, The material of the star falls towards the center. What exactly happens to it, we don't know. But it's gone. It's gone by the time the black hole forms. Um, And that's only one way to make a black hole. Is it, for instance, like uh, a Michael Heiser sculpture, which is a pit, or the the, the, uh, 9-11 memorial, which are these big black holes in the ground? Is it like You know, that's not a bad reference. In some sense, one uh, way of viewing a black hole is almost like a waterfall of space and time itself. Right. And so in that sense, that's kind of a beautiful um, metaphor. Thank you. So, yes. So what did Albert Einstein uh, think of black holes? He was first notified about the mathematical solution that we now call a black hole by a German infantry soldier, Karl Schwarzschild, who was an accomplished astronomer but decided to join the German army and uh, was serving on the Russian front. And he finds the formal mathematical solution describing the curved space-time around an incredibly compact um, mass, an arbitrarily compact mass. All the mass could be at a point. So it's completely sort of fiction. Right. Einstein's incredibly impressed by the solution. He helps get the paper published, but he says, you know, nature won't allow these things to form. How could you make mass go to a point? I mean, after all, it'd be very hard for me to crush a table with my bare hands. I mean, right. it's very hard to crush things. They resist collapse. Stars are big and puffy. They're not collapsed. And that's because of all this nuclear pressure. But interestingly, it was decades before scientists started to think that they could be real astrophysical objects Uh and the death state of stars. So the existence of black holes uh, was was another corollary collateral discovery of the theory of relativity. Absolutely. And and a lot of people don't realize that relativity is like one mathematical sentence from which you have the ability to derive a complete understanding of any space-time scenario, the Big Bang, the expansion of the universe, the black holes. It doesn't mean Einstein pursued all of those implications, nor did he necessarily accept them right away. So black holes was an example of an implication of this starting point that it took him a while to accept. And the expansion of the universe was also something Einstein didn't believe until Hubble observed the expansion. But all out of this one simple thing, which is just... It's literally one sentence, one mathematical sentence. When people say it's beautiful, that's the kind of thing they mean. Um, uh, So gravitational waves, Mm -hmm. they're what? So gravitational waves are literally oscillations or ripples in the shape of space-time. So Einstein writes down in 1915 this description which says if you have mass and energy, it will warp and and stretch and and uh, affect the nature of space and time. The bowling ball on the trampoline. Yes, but li- imagine the bowling ball moves around. The 
deformation of the trampoline has to follow it. And what Einstein figured very early, he writes to Schwarzschild, actually, the person who talks about the black hole, and he says, the most important thing I have to turn to is the issue of whether or not these waves in the shape of space-time exist. So if the bowling ball moves, Einstein theorizes, look, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. And so the information about the motion of the of the bowling ball and the deformation of the space-time has to be propagated in a wave that travels at the speed of light. So literally like fish swirling in a pond, creating waves that emanate outwards, those waves are waves in the curve of space-time. If you are in space-time, you would literally bob on the wave. So this was yet another thing of like, okay, I had this idea, this genius thing, and like (laughs) it implies this, but... He sort of felt like, I'm not sure of this either. He went back and forth for decades. In 1936, 20 years later, you, you, people asked Einstein, do you believe that gravitational waves are real? And he says, I don't know. But I know it's a really important question. And when did we, that is you, <laughs> uh, and your peers decide that this they do exist? Well, even that, you know, it's gradual. So when people like Ray Weiss and Kip Thorne were trying to think of experimental ways to actually measure the existence of gravitational waves, they were very much um, on the forefront because there was a lot, again, of This is seven, the 1970s, 80s? Late 60s, yeah. uh-huh. There were still people who said, look, they just don't exist, even then. And um, But Kip felt very confident and Ray felt very confident. And so here they are building these original prototypes during a time when people don't really know if either black holes or gravitational right. waves are real. Which is a big bet. It's staring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So uh, lots of people have been saying and will continue to say, 2016, terrible year, terrible Terrible year. year. But what the heck? One of the good things uh, in astrophysics, uh, uh, your guys, your people found out that they heard, announced that they'd heard gravitational waves. Yeah. I mean, even they were surprised. Right. So Really? Yeah. So um, the way it's often portrayed is, oh, they just flicked the switch and there was this great discovery. The truth is it was a 50-year arduous, arduous campaign, like climbing a mountain kind of a campaign. I mean, bodies were left at the side of the road. Not everybody makes it to the summit. The first generation of machines were constructed in 2000, the turn of the century, and they uh, were excellent machines, technological achievement, but they heard nothing. And so they were, in some sense, on their last leg. They always suspected you would need another generation of machines. So here it's 2015. They've installed the advanced machine, which means they took out all of these components in these huge four-kilometer-long machines um, and reinstalled more sophisticated equipment. And in August of last year, just a little over a year ago, Ray said to me, you know, if we don't detect black holes, this thing's a failure. That's a pretty intense thing to say for a man who spent 50 years of his life on it. And like... And the United States government had spent a billion plus. A billion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so it swelled from a group of a couple people to nearly a thousand scientists, a billion dollars, two enormous machines, yeah. and two different coasts. And the machine. Mm-hmm. Describe the machine. What is the machine? They're, um, they're a marvel to witness. You can actually see them from a plane. It, they, each machine is uh, in the shape of an L. And there's, there's two primary instruments. So the way it works is you, you shine a laser down the length of the arms of the L. And um, that laser is split into the two arms, and then it bounces off mirrors at the far ends, four kilometers away on each um, leg. And then it comes back down to the apex from uh, which it originated. The mirrors are incredibly delicately suspended so that they can literally oscillate on the wave as the wave passes, like something floating in the ocean. Hmm. And if they bob ever so slightly, the light will come back 
out of sync. And it's, in a sense, it's like having the body of an electric guitar. So, you know, if you pluck a guitar string, it doesn't technically make a sound, but the body of the electric guitar Uh records the reading shape of the string. So that sound we hear is actually produced by the machine? Yeah, so the machine um, records the shape of the, in this case, it's not a string, but a drum, the ringing drum, space-time itself. It records the shape, and the the guys and, and the girls in the control room literally listen to the instrument through, like, conventional speakers. Uh, And here's what they heard, which is slowed down uh, so that we can hear it. Um, Which, of course, sounds like a bird uh, in in the northern regions of (laughs) magical... Canada or something. Um, so, People always giggle when they hear it. I think they expect something a little bit like lower tone. Well, it's a, not grand. It's, it's not cute. grand and rumbling and intimidating and terrifying. So that is the sound of two black holes colliding. Yeah, that is uh, the final uh, one-fifth of a second of two black holes that have been orbiting each other for we don't know how long, maybe a billion years. We don't know. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, again, like mallets on a drum. It rings space-time, but only in the final one-fifth of a second, is it loud enough to be detected by the LIGO machine 1.3 billion years later? It, which is like, as so much of your world is and theoretical physics, it just makes me feel like, whoa. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 that level of precision that, I mean, Earth is rumbling, it's moving, it's, the, oh, I, yeah. it's almost unbelievable that that measurement could be made. It is. And this is why I became so enamored of the experiment. I'm a theorist. I sit with pen and paper and I just work it out in math. To have the, the gall in a way and the confidence to build something just strikes me as amazing. And to believe you're going to beat down exactly hurricanes, winds off the Gulf, uh, earthquakes in China, yes, yeah, exactly. planes flying overhead, the rum, the trucks driving by on the highway, yeah. all of these things swamp, swamp uh, the signal. Yeah. And so that's what the achievement really is about. And it's all that's beautiful. And I get why this is an important thing to prove. But like, okay, great. Well, what's in it for us? <laughs> you know, I, ha- I have to tell you, we don't always have the language for what's in it for us. But I know that on that day, on February 11th, 2016, when they announced the discovery, the whole world stopped. Literally, the whole world stopped. I was interviewed for Al Jazeera TV, you know, somebody interviewing me from Qatar, and we're talking for a second about being under the same sky. And there is just something tremendous about the human desire to know and the insanity of doing an experiment like this and and the idea of learning about our place in the universe. And it should be something that's absolutely unifying. I'm with you. If we're really lucky... Um, it will be a lot like the advent of the telescope 300 years ago. Really? So if you think about that, all we could look for were things we knew existed. Galileo was looking at the sunspots and the rings of Jupiter because he knew those things existed. But he didn't foresee galaxies and he didn't foresee black holes or quasars. He didn't foresee an expanding universe. All of this was, was just the beginning. And most of the universe actually is dark. So a very, very small percentage of the universe is luminous, gives us light for telescopes to collect. Interesting. So so we now have this new giant uh, three-mile, six-mile telescope 
uh, essentially, that, yeah. that, that listens instead of looking. Yeah, so it's like a recording device to add, yeah. lay the soundtrack down huh. for the universe when all we've had is kind of a silent movie and these series of frozen snapshots. So what would our, our friend Einstein uh, have thought of, of this detection 100 years It's something Ray, Ray Weiss, who, again, was one of the original architects of the machine, talks about. He says he wishes he could show Einstein um, this, this discovery. And um, I think it would have been absolutely remarkable to him. He never believed there would be any experiment ever in the future of humanity that could do this. So I think it would be a lot of exciting aspects of consequences of his great idea coming together. Jan Levin, thank you very thank much. Thank you so much, Kurt. Good to be here. Jan Levin's a physicist and the author of Black Hole Blues. That's it for this week's episode. If you'd like to find out more about relativity... Enroll in college or small steps. Check out studio360.org where we've got links to all the books we mentioned this hour. Studio 360 is a co production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team includes Jenny Lawton, Andrew Adam Newman, Louie Mitchell, Krista Ripple, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Tommy Bazarian, Zoe Saunders, Gabriella Cortez, Judy Gu, Jackie Harris, and I'm Kurt Anderson. Way to go, Einstein. <laughs> Studio 360's series on creativity and science is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information online at sloan.org. PRI Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, a theater critic takes on the most famous playwright ever. If you had a lick of intelligence in your head, this play would not happen. It only happens if you are stupid. The Case Against Shakespeare. That's next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.